HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to The Great Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Annie She We'll talk to Annie about King, the ongoing pandemic, and of course, wine. I'm your host, Sam Van Ruby. Stay with us for The Great Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. New York's own Annie She attended private school, Yale University, and moved to London to work in finance at J.P. Morgan. So the question is, and I'm sure her parents asked many times, what the hell are you doing in the restaurant business? Annie is founder, partner, GM, and beverage director at Soho Restaurant King. King is run and staffed by all women, critically acclaimed, celebrating its fifth year, and has achieved near cult status. Welcome to the great nation, Annie. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Um, we're talking to Annie remotely via Zencaster. Annie, where are you right now? I'm at home. I was at King earlier, but decided that, you know, an open kitchen wouldn't give us the, the quiet. Okay. So um, came back to the apartment in Manhattan. That is very kind and generous of you using your time because through the years I've done interviews where literally trays of glasses have been dropped during the show. So, <laughs> um, so thank you. This will be very peaceful and zen. Um, Annie, I ask all my guests to tell me about their journey in life and wine. And I want you to give me some background, but I want to set you up a little. Um, you know, I want to know a little about you, you know, where you came from, you know, don't dwell on the early part of life. Um, I want to know um, about your shift from finance to hospitality. Um, I want to hear about how you met your partners. And I want to hear, you know, the story of how the restaurant came about. So in your journey in life and wine to get us to the present, hopefully you can cover all that stuff. So yeah. go. <laughs> sure. Um, 
So I came to wine and restaurants pretty late in life. Um, I grew up in a Chinese family. My parents immigrated to the U.S. in the late 80s. Um, and we didn't drink growing up, nor did we really eat out. My mom cooked almost every single meal we had. and. Wow. Restaurants were really reserved for like a special occasion, like once a year kind of a thing. Um, and when we went when we went out to eat, it was typically a Chinese restaurant. So, growing up, I have no memories of alcohol at all. My dad would have um, a Budweiser, like a Bud Heavy, every <laughs> okay. now and then at dinner. Um, but it was definitely not a wine household. Um, and so the thrill of eating out and restaurants and wine came much later in life. Um, but I've always loved food. I think there's a lot to be attributed to my mother for, for cooking and for bringing us around the table every night, because one of the rules was that we ate dinner together as a family. Um, but when I got the chance to go to France um, at age 16 on like a, one of those, you know, exchanges, um, I had my first glass of rosé in the Loire Valley. And I had my um, one of my first tastes or my first taste of eau de vie, which I don't know why they took a bunch of 16 year olds to a distillery. But they did. That's funny. Yeah. And I thought like framboise eau de vie would taste like a raspberry um, or raspberry juice and was very much mistaken. Mm. Um, but that kind of hooked me. And it was always the combination of like travel, kind of culture, being independent, eating the food, drinking the wine. It was always wrapped up all together. Um, right. And then when I had the chance to move to London, um, that was really when I had the independence and also some money to kind of go out to eat and drink wine. And turns out everything is much easier to access and much cheaper when you're in Europe. Um, now, and, London is after college and pursuing a career and a job, right? Yes. London is okay. after college. Um, I can't say that there was a ton of culinary adventures in college. Um, I was the yeah. first female president of our of a co-ed fraternity. So there was a lot of coming around together and drinking, but not exactly wine. Um, right. That wasn't, yeah, it was really after college that... Once I joined J.P. Morgan, um, I had the chance to go abroad and live abroad. And that's when I really was exposed to to restaurants and to to wine. Um, so, yeah. Well, who were the restaurants? Um, well, a lot of it was just eating locally in London. Um, I begged for a stage um, at Clove Club in West and East London, sorry, in Shoreditch. Isaac and, in Shoreditch, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, great guy, Kevin great place. Kevin, who was um, the sous chef, the CDC there, really. And right. um, that's who, uh, who who said yes when I literally begged on their doorstep. And um, they started me off just like, as you could expect, peeling potatoes in a corner of the basement. Um, but I spent probably like a couple of months worth of weekends with them. Um in the back of house actually to start and then a little bit in the front of house later on. Um, and that was extraordinarily kind of them because I had no business, you know, I had nothing to do with food at that point, at least on my resume. Um, but I had a friend who would 
um, meet me in different countries. So we went to San Sebastian and ate our way through that city. Mm. We went to Copenhagen and ate our way through that. Um, one of those like revelatory meals was obviously at Noma, um, where we did the wine pairing and wine pairings, you know, aren't always the most exciting, but this was one of those ones that just like really stuck in my head of like enhancing the flavor of the food, bringing new facets of wine to life. It was incredible. Um, and yeah, just, just the opportunity to travel around and I went to France a lot. I'd, I'd gone to France a lot through high school, actually. Um, I spent lots of summers there. I took French in, in high school and college. Um, but so it was I'm in London. Yeah. Back up for a second. So you you have this, you know, very good job and career going. I mean, JP Morgan, <laughs> you choose to be in London. Where's the compulsion that on the weekends – you know, you want to peel potatoes or be in that environment. I mean, is that the beginning that maybe my mind is open and there's other things I want to do? I mean, that's it's hardly silly. It's crazy. I mean, tell me about that. <laughs> it was um, a full schedule uh, for sure. Um, I had always loved food. And I think a lot of it, like I say, comes from being in a Chinese family in a Chinese household where... Right food is such a big part of our family and part of the culture and, and cooking and eating together. I mean, it's, a, it's like many cultures, a way of showing love. Um, right. and I've just always been obsessed with food as a child that resulted in just, that just kind of showed itself in, in like binge watching hours and hours of food network as like an right. eight, eight year old. Um, and then as I got older, I'd always thought and wondered about food as an option, but, you know, obviously the 08 crisis was devastating and it really affected my family. And I just felt, and I was, um, I was a liberal, you won't believe this, but a humanities major in a liberal arts college. I knew nothing about finance or the real world. And I was a junior in college and I was like, you know what? I really have um, a responsibility to my family and to myself to like learn something practical um, that's cool. so that's kind of how I found myself in finance, just wanting to something very simple, right. like wanting to be able to like read the FT or the wall street journal, know what's going on in the world. But so I no, think no fire was burning in your belly for that career, right? No, no. Yeah. I think it was a very practical kind of professional desire. Um, but my passion was always food and restaurants and hospitality and, um, I had, before I moved to London, I'd actually written Jonathan Waxman a letter um, asking to work at Barbudo as a a stage on the weekends. And I'd been taking a weekend course at NYU in food management and food operations. So I was trying to figure out what part of the hospitality industry I wanted to be a part of, but that move was very much concretely in my future. And then I had the chance to move to London, which I jumped at. So that kind of got scrapped. But once I settled down into London, I kind of had that itch again, which is why I reached out to Clove Club. I actually reached out to like a dozen restaurants, but Tim was the only one kind enough to respond. And so I just jumped and showed up at the door of the restaurant when it, when they opened their doors and, and, and begged and he said sure why don't you start with peeling potatoes um wow was ali the sommelier there then or he came later 
He, I think he came later because then it was still very much um, Daniel and Johnny um, right. were there every night in service. Right. I think I missed Isaac for a huge chunk of it because he was doing something, I think, in Australia. Um, but it was very much Johnny and Daniel. Um, but um, I, that was so, around the same time that I met Claire. So it kind okay. of all happened. Claire and- DeBoer. Claire DeBoer, um, my business partner and, and chef at King, um, we met because I was living with one of my best friends from high school who was getting her master's in London and she had gone to college with Claire and mm. Claire at this point was cooking at the river cafe. And she said, you should meet my friend. I think you guys would really get along. So she actually set us up on like a little blind friend date and we immediately hit it off. Um, and we decided, and we both, you know, expressed kind of future hopes and dreams of opening a restaurant. Um, and we were like, well, maybe this can work out. Um, <laughs> both of us having no experience in opening, right. managing, running, but we decided to start doing a series of pop-ups and, it was just like a really easy way to figure out if we worked well together, kind of like see if we were both serious together and independently in this idea of opening a restaurant. Um, so we would just take days off together. Um, so and- she would do the cooking and menu and you would do the organizing front of the house, you know, put exactly. all that other that stuff. Bridge, the was Jess Shadbolt in the picture by now or no? Jess was in the picture because she was Claire's best friend at okay. the cafe. And um, so I met Jess through Claire, but just from dining at the River Cafe. I think I played hooky from work one Friday afternoon okay. and, and took myself to the River Cafe for lunch. Um, and that's when I first met Jess. And she is like such a ray of sunshine, like immediately completely memorable so that's how I first met Jess but at this point it was just Claire and I um and um we did a couple of these but they were you know we were selling tickets to family and friends word of mouth friends of friends and she would cook we would you know run around Notting Hill trying to find ingredients and then um I would try to come up with cocktails and we would do like a little aperitif moment where there'd be a welcome cocktail and some nibbles. And then we'd move to a dining room and, and do wine. So it was, it was, did it go, did it go well? I mean, was it, <laughs> was it received well? I mean, you said you did it multiple times. Did it satisfy, you know, that urge that you had to really put it together? It did in some ways, because as it turns out, pop-ups are way harder than actual restaurants because you're buying everything piecemeal. You're like lugging around crates of glasses and plates and linens. And, and I mean, most importantly, it was a way to get to know Claire and then eventually get to know Jess. Um, So that was probably the most important piece of it, but it certainly, you know, I think a lot of people have this fear of like, well, do I take this risk and leave a job and jump off into the unknown? Um, I've spoken to a lot of people about wanting to go into hospitality. And I think this is a really easy way of dipping your toe um, until you really feel certain and assured that that's the move you want to make. So that's what it was for us. Um, And that happened. I mean, you solidified your like and love for Claire and Jess and the idea of moving forward with hospitality 
was going to become a reality. That all worked out. That all happened, and we all kind of quit our jobs around the same time and moved back to New York. Um, so that's really, and, and that's really All how right. <laughs> I know. So it's wait, so from that point, and, and, you know, I know there's a lot in between, but just from that point to literally when you opened the restaurant was how long? So I moved back. So I quit my job in June of 2015. I then right. traveled for a couple of months and then arrived back in New York in September of 2015. And then we opened our doors to family and friends end of August 2016. Oh, pretty, pretty quickly. You know, and we won't in get into everything, but looking, yeah. you know, for a location and, you know, setting everything up. Um, I'm sure you were consumed with that. Um, I want to talk about that a little more, you know, as we go down the road. But that gets us to the current. What I want to talk about um, before we get into the restaurant is sort of what's going on now. And that's about, you know, that we're about a year and a half into COVID. And it's been hard not to do the show and that topic not being, you know, a chunk of the discussion of the show. Because I'm talking to wine people, hospitality people, restaurant people, and we've been also consumed by that. Yeah. Um, what I want to do with you is I don't want to look back at this point so much. Mm. You know, we could talk about I've talked about that with other people. I'm sure you've talked about it. Um, let's look forward a little. You know, everybody knows in New York and in parts of the country where we're at, you know, with COVID, um, it differs, you know, in some areas, certainly the South is different than LA and different in New York. Um, how are things different now? You know, you're open, we're you're open. sort of back in the groove, but are, are things, you know, much different? I mean, what can you say to that? Yeah, I think, I think there's such a desire to kind of, you know, I don't think we are past COVID, certainly. Um, no. We're still very much in COVID. I think what we have learned to do over the past 18 months in varying, you know, in small steps is to live with COVID. Right. Um, and you just, if you work in the hospitality industry, you just had to, had to have figured it out by now. Um, so we still wear masks, you know, in, in our restaurants, but we very much understand this desire from our guests to come together and celebrate. And, you know, we see like, so many requests for large parties for these postponed celebrations that are finally getting to happen. Um, you know, New York fashion week just happened. We hosted right. four parties for some fashion houses and like, that was amazing to see. It was such a, it was so wonderful to see that like element come back into the fabric of life in New York. Um, so it's not back to total normal, but a lot of things that indicated normal life, are happening, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of the transition. You know, uh, we right. will probably wear masks for a long time, at least mm. on the staff side. But that doesn't mean that we can't kind of like still celebrate and still, you know, bring people together. Our full staff is vaccinated. We have been for a while now. And, um, you know, having that was like the real watershed moment. Once everyone was fully vaccinated, I think we all took like a, a breath of relief and 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 now we're still being careful. 
but um, we really want to be there to help create these moments and these memories and these experiences for our guests. That's why we're all in the hospitality industry. Um, so so. To, to that point, your desire was to hang in there and, you know, hope things would get better and you'd reopen and you just described some cool things, you know, fashion week parties, people rescheduling parties. Did the pandemic pandemic force you to innovate? You know, I know people brought their wine cellars upstairs and did retail and all kinds of things. I mean, yeah, were, were you guys absolutely. sitting around like, we should try this? We should, I mean, what, what, anything happened that was interesting? Yeah, I think it, there is definitely a silver lining to COVID in some ways. Um, we did a lot of these projects that we had, you know, like since we opened, we've been talking about wanting to put out our own rosé or our own olive oil, like these items that you are did. So crucial to who we are. And we finally got the chance to do that in COVID because once indoor dining shut again in, you know, in the winter time, we were like, how are we going to capture some of this holiday magic and holiday sales that we no longer really have access to, we should come up with like things that people can gift that are also meaningful to us as a restaurant. So that was the King blanket. Yeah. It was just born out of like, Oh, people are going to be cold outside because they're dining outdoors. We should come up with a really nice blanket. Um, we launched King wine club and that was a collaboration with grant over at parcel to help us with the shipping, but that's been a huge success. Um, We have the King Olive Oil, now the King Rosé. So these are all projects that were like ideas we had, but we were so in the weeds with running the restaurant every single day that we just didn't have time. And that's my question. I mean, in order to sustain, you know, a place like that, you know, where there's such attention to detail and everything, you still would have been stuck in the weeds where maybe one or none of these projects would have happened. Oh, Do you feel? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there is always that, you know, um, positive thing. Um, are there any challenges still looming over, you know, that you feel are still hard to resolve or you kind of got through everything? Yeah. I mean, you know, the other day we were just talking about family meal. We're like, wow, we really miss those days when we could like all sit around a table together and have that moment of like sharing food with each other before we went into service. And it's like small details like that, that we still quite can't bring back. You know, right now family meal is still outside. Everyone's socially distanced just because, you know, it's worth it to take that precaution because God forbid yeah. does get COVID, then suddenly the entire staff is exposed. So those small details, you know, we really wish we could bring back. Um, they will come back. They will come and back. And they were exactly. part of the fabric of who you are and they'll stay that way. So, um, you know, I totally get that. Um, you know, what's interesting to me, <laughs> and you kind of bared it out, you know, when you talked about your journey in life and wine that you really stepped into wine and hospitality with virtually no experience. I mean, and I I, kind of made the assumption that, you know, at least you could help with the restaurant side because you went to college. Well, you didn't go to college for business, but you worked at JP Morgan. Um, But that's, you know, I think you figured that on your own. The, The real question is, you know, how did you get into wine? 
I, I mean, I realized the few exposures you had that excited you about it, but more importantly, how did you teach yourself about wine? Cause you're the wine guy. I mean, it's a wonderful list. It's very compatible, you know, to the food, the environment and the vibe, you know, and you're not one of these, you know, you and I know a lot of people, wine people that are like uber trained. You're not that guy, but it doesn't matter. So how do you, how do you get there? How do you teach yourself? How do you stay on top of it? Well, when you take a risk, Sam, like opening a restaurant and renting a commercial lease and stepping into the role of beverage director and and GM, you kind of don't have many choices but to figure it out. Um, I mean, it was really tough. It was, I read so many books. um, So self-taught. Self-taught and self-taught mostly uh, almost 100% through reading and trying to memorize facts, putting together flashcards and going to as many so you, tastings as possible. It just you did that nerdy that. stuff. You did get to tastings. You were able to. Well, once we knew we were going to open a restaurant and once we had enough wherewithal to kind of like get a liquor license application going, I started going to, there are lots of like kind of free, well, there was a lot of free industry tastings. Yeah. And I would say, we're opening a restaurant, you know, can, can I come? And most people would say yes. And, it was just through that and through reading that kind of got me going as far as King went. Um, cause we didn't really know anyone in New York. Like right. it wasn't, you know, are, are there better ways to do it? Absolutely. Was this the hardest one? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, I looking back. Were people that, nice to you? I, I mean, you had no clout, you know, you weren't ordering anything. You had really no connections. Um, did the community live up to what we hoped it would be, which would be camaraderie? And were they nice oh, to you? Definitely. Definitely. Um, I mean, looking back, there are so many people who offered so much advice and so much mentorship and support in different ways. Like for me, it was always a blend of wine and business in front of house. Right. And I can point to, you know, Jonathan Waxman ended up being a huge mentor to us more on like the business and the financial PL side of it. Um, um, we were welcomed with open arms by Robert and Grant and Arvid and Ryan across the street. Across the street. Um, I remember we were <laughs> brown paper up in the windows, um, lights on. We were like dusting and vacuuming and like polishing because right. we didn't know, I mean, we just didn't know anything. And they knocked on our door with like a giant mag of Barash champagne and said, welcome to the neighborhood. And it was the cone of the kind. I still remember that so clearly. That's um, so nice. And they've remained, you know, dear friends. Um, you I guys remember- rule that, you guys rule the avenue on each side. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, you know, how good both of you are and a testament, you know, that you've been around. Um, so you trial by fire, tasting, mentors, reading, where, however you can get to it, right? Yeah. And I, I must mention Lyle and Victoria as well. I spent, you know, a couple of well, shifts. Lyle's a good here. contact. Yeah. So I first, so, you know, the reason why we kind of found this space was because I was doing a couple of trial shifts, like star shifts with Victoria at Piora back in the day. Um, uh, at Morea? Or no, Peora, you said. Peora. No, you said Peora. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then through her, I met Lyle. And and we had always, you know, we loved the Tompier wines. That's kind of what we knew. And we were like, 
And as I discovered the rest of that Kermit Lynch portfolio, we're like, this is, these are the wines that are being, that are meant to be drank with this food. Um, right. And th- they remain really good friends. So yeah, yeah it's kind They're of both uh, terrific people. Do you, do you have any desire for wine certification? I don't, I think I good. did at one point. But that was, I think, when I was a little younger and it came from a lack of confidence. I think at this point, like, I don't feel that need for, you know, validation. I think it's important to constantly educate yourself and to read. But that's something that I do on my own. And I, you know, I don't I don't feel a need to to kind of go through and pay for those courses, um, if that makes uh-huh. sense. That's that's a pragmatic part of the answer. I agree with you. You know, I don't know if what was going on with the court, you know, yeah. had any, you know, like, well, why get involved with that? But, you know, you're there and you continue, you know, to be inquisitive. So, you know, sort of doesn't matter. Have you have you started tasting new wines? I mean, are reps coming in and out, you know, with open bottles have you done any wine restaurant related travel? I mean, any yeah. of that going on? Um, I just got back from an incredible trip to Campania, uh, which was not a region that I knew a lot about and had not traveled in. So it was incredibly eye opening. We were focusing on the Vesuvio um, DOC as well as the Tarasi. DOC and it was both were very very eye opening. Um, we we tasted you know I mean I want to say like over sixty wines for the Vesuvio DOC, reds and whites and sparkling. Um, but we were invited there by those consortios via Pene Bianco and it was um, it was both to learn about the region and the history of wine in that region. So there were fun things like summiting Vesuvius and walking around the mm. crater of Vesuvius to really understand volcanic soil and what that brings to the wines and what does the altitude of Vesuvius mean. And little facts like there was a 1944 eruption that blew the cap off of like the cartoon Vesuvius we all have in our minds with like the plain right. smoke. And now there's actually two mountains. There's Mount Soma and there's Mount Vesuvius. And one has a higher altitude than the other and they make very different wines. Um, so that's one region in Italy, which is an amazing country where there's just so much info, you know, which just shows you, you know, you got a lot more to learn, but that I think is the fun part of it all. Yes. Right. Every vintage, there's something new to learn. Um, every, there's always more producers to taste, um, in a region like Vesuvius, you know, there are wine like grape types that I've never heard of, you know, Catalanesca, Capitone, like all these wines that, you know, they're also figuring out. Um, it's right. a very young region. And so they're, they're still learning which soil types suit which grapes best and how to vinify the wine to make, to take the most out of it. Like it's, it's a never ending journey. And that is definitely yeah, that, the appeal. That's an interesting circumstance. Um, I wanted you to tell me about some wines, regions, winemakers that have been getting your attention. So we'll put Campania under that column yeah. because you, you definitely talked about some grapes in the area, you know, underappreciated for sure. Um, 
And I'm guessing that you're going to find a way to, you know, get some Campania wines on your wine list if they didn't exist. But is there anything else, you know, you've tasted from friends or, you know, any tastings that have caught your attention? Yeah, I think I my mind has very much been stuck in Italy. We have um, a project that we can't quite talk about yet, but that is upcoming um, where the the focus will be Italian wines. And I want to write an all Italian, Italian list. And um, I, it's something that I've been struggling with and wanting to get excited about, but not quite managing yet. And um, so much of what I love is French wine. Um, and so the list at King is French and Italian. Um, right. We're going to get into that in a few minutes. So you're spending, you're, you're trying to get yourself up to speed or yeah, taking more knowledge on Italian wines. Exactly. And just, so you to- didn't say it, but I did. And we'll talk about it at the end of the show. You're probably opening a new restaurant and it's going to skew Italian. I never said it. Okay. <laughs> um, so the companion wines, Italian wines, Anything else? I mean, you know, any romances with champagne or, you know, stuff like that? Always romances with champagne. Okay. Um, All right. So those are, those are good ones. Yeah. I mean, it's what you would expect, right? Like a lot of Burgundy. I've been having a moment with Corton, um, Grar Champagne, always looking out for something new and exciting. And there's so many coming out of Champagne. We're preparing um, for a trip to Burgundy and around Thanksgiving to Burgundy and Champagne. Who's Um, we? um, My partner and a friend. Um, So it's it's a personal kind of wine journey, um, but obviously work-related. So as always, Burgundy's high on the list. But um, Right. So we have to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about the restaurant, the food, the wine list, you know, all that stuff, get into a bunch of things. But before we do that, um, you're going to Burgundy. Is there a challenge with Burgundy that it tends to be inaccessible and expensive? And that's not necessarily how your wine list reflects. I mean, are you going there to find those opportunities for the restaurant? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. I think you know, you can't really be a wine professional and not really kind of have a deep understanding of Burgundy. And and there's definitely a lot of challenges around global warming and each vintage is presenting its unique set of challenges. So um, I think I would really love to incorporate an annual trip to Burgundy as part of like my curriculum in the year. Um, And, and so this will be, I've been to Burgundy on kind of trips in the past, but this is the kind of the first on my own trip. You'll be very focused on this one. Yeah. Which will be really wonderful, but yeah, Yeah. it's to find, it is to find those gems, you know, whether it's, you know, a producer like Dore Jean Vial, or if it's, you know, uh, something else like Embezzle, like the more underappreciated regions that have come into their own with warmer temperatures, it's, it's to definitely learn something new and then obviously visit and try the classics. Right. Um, I agree. You got to be on the ground to really taste it, see it and feel it. Um, all right, Annie, we have to take a break. We are talking to Annie. She, Annie, she is, um, one of the proprietors of King restaurant in Soho in New York. 
Um, when we come back, we're going to get into the restaurant a little more, the food and the wine list. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back. We are back with my guest, Annie Shee. Annie, she is a co-founder, she is a partner, she is the GM, and she's the beverage director at King Restaurant in Soho. Um, Let's talk about your restaurant, Annie. Um, I have to say that you've created, you know, a restaurant that has an easy, casual feeling, and I think that vibe was from day one, Um, and that's not an easy thing you know, to get to. Um, so what I'm curious about are, you know, what are the elements, you know, what'd you do? What'd you put in place <laughs> that sort of, you know, got you there? I mean, don't yell at me, but is it like, you know, three women and keeping dudes out of the mix? <laughs> no. You know, is it that touch, you know, no, being smarter? I, I mean, what, what, you, you know, what makes it where you open the doors and Jesus, you walk in and go, man, you know, love this place what do you think it is um well we definitely first of all made lots of mistakes when we first opened so that was very generous of you sam but um okay i think we what we knew before we opened was exactly what kind of restaurant like we had the same vision jess claire and i like it we wanted it to feel like an extension of our kitchen of our home but we wanted it the details to be precise, like while wanting it to be casual and, and friendly and warm and generous, we also were like, okay, but we don't want the carta to be sitting on the table when mains hit the table because the experience of eating cold carta is not very nice. Or we don't want the, you know, like we were very clear about certain details. And I think it was because we had such a clear idea of what we, what we wanted the ideal dining experience that came to look and feel and taste like. Um, and all of you had that sensibility. You all agreed and bought into that. Yeah. Like you and Claire weren't the clean room kids and Jess was the dirty room kid. And you had a like, kind of, you know, I mean, you all bought in. Yeah. We all were like, we don't want 
a fussy dining room. We don't want it to feel, we never wanted to be cool. We never wanted to be trendy. We wanted to be so simple, but so warm that it could feel timeless. And those were all things that we agreed on. And that's why we decided to open this restaurant together was somehow miraculously, we all kind of share that aesthetic. And of course there are small details where we differ, but in terms of what we wanted from King, um, we all wanted like a square dining room, an open kitchen, a small, you know, bar room where guests could enjoy a cocktail. Like all those details that ended up becoming King were true before King. And I think that- Those were physical visions you had, like this is how I'd like it set up. Yeah. And it was a super clear vision, which is kind of unusual, but I think that's why it worked. That's unbelievable. Do you, how long, I mean, weeks, months, half a year later, do you stand in the dining room and say, yeah, this is what we're getting there. We're almost there. We're there. I mean, did I it happen? Think, I don't think you can ask any owner and say, like, do you think your restaurant's running exactly how you want? I didn't ask you that question. I, I asked you, did, did you stand there and feel like, you know, we're getting, this is, close to what we want to be or things are going in the right direction you felt that way yeah we knew it in our gut when we found the location that this was going to be home um do you think that location is a major contributing factor i mean there's something cool about soho there's something cool about the residents there's something cool about all the other people there king across the street i mean was it important to be in a certain place or you happenstancely wound up there or you thought you should be in a neighborhood. We were supposed to be in East Chinatown. We were like, like days away from signing a lease on East Broadway. And I was like, and and the concept was going to be a little bit different, but we were like, we just didn't have the right feeling about it. You know, the negotiations were going South. I really didn't have confidence that I could, push the wine sales and the beverage sales that I needed to make my part of the PL work. And, and then we found 18 King street and, um, it was everything we wanted. It was that square dining room. It had charm. It was a, a right. neighborhood. It was like a real neighborhood, with real people who could be our regulars. <laughs> like we, we wanted a corner spot. We wanted, you know, like all these things, Right. Check all the boxes. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I ate at Ernesto's last night, which I think is East Broadway. I mean, East of Chinatown. But it reminds me a little of your place because it's not that big. It's a corner place. You know, they have the luxury of the weather now and the outside, you know, where they could throw tables. But it's just done very well. And I'm not defying or arguing anything you say, but they, they seem to have pulled it off, which leads oh. me to believe that if you got the right idea and the right people it could open anywhere. Definitely. But, but I see them. the value of where you are and you know, how important it does contribute. Um, let's, let's talk about the food and the menu. All right. Describe to people, you alluded to it a little, the menu basically focuses towards what and where. Yeah, so we are very much inspired by the regions of southern France and regions of Italy. Um, So the menu is daily changing, which is why the food menu is very short. 
Um, right. We have a couple of nibbles, four starters and three mains and a couple of desserts. And that changes every day. And it's not changing to be creative or innovative. It's changing because, you know, the the you know swiss chard is a little bit sweeter one day than the other or um maybe there's only 20 quail that we can get from our supplier so it's market driven or availability yeah, exactly um, and you're discerning about you know the quails or rabbits or whatever they use right yes exactly and so that really informed the wine list as well we wanted our ideal customer to be someone who could come to king once a week and experience something new and so on the wine side i also wanted the wine list to be really curated and really short to match the menu for the food um so the it's it's only french and italian wines which is enough to keep keep us happy for you know the rest of our days and right. um the wine list also changes so the by the glass okay. changes you know a couple of times every every season and the wine list changes i mean we're reprinting those wine lists every single day and that's partially because when you work with small producers, there's not a whole lot of that wine. So it's very natural that, you know, as something runs out, something else appears and it's not going to be available 365 days of the year. Um, right. So you have that availability. Then you have a deep collaboration with your partners and chefs, which the food changes based on market availability and certainly seasonability, right? Yep. You know, so you're you're matching the the wines um, to that. So I mean, do, do the three of you sit down and you know taste stuff, or is it just you now? Well, so um, the the newest member of our of our team to the of, or the beverage team in particular is our new beverage director, Danny. Um, okay. Who was? Where did he come from? He was our AGM for a while, and okay. and but he has such a talent for for wine and for beverage in general. And the best part is like we talk the same language when it comes to wine, and we have very similar palates when it comes to wine. And right. so it was a very natural transition for him um, to become our beverage director um, as we kind of get ready and, and prepare ourselves for the second project. Um, right. So the new Italian restaurant, which we won't get to. So <laughs> to that point, so Danny is helping you and he'll maybe lay off some stuff for you to, you know, concentrate on other things. You feel good about it. So tell me about the philosophy behind the list. So it's French Italian. Exactly. Um, I mean, are you, I, I know you have a reserve list, you know, nice, harder to get expensive bottles. Um, do you stay away from like certain regions? Like, are you not, have, I looked at the list, but I'm still asking you, I mean, do you still stay away from like, you know, big Tuscan reds and some Barolos to bring more interesting wines? What's your philosophy? I mean, natural, small producers, low intervention, you know, give me your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think we can use all those buzzwords, small producers, low intervention, um, well-made, clean, um, and by clean, I mean clean practices in the cellar, right? Um, not a which is compatible food. to the food, right? Exactly, and that's really what it comes down to: is that our food is not heavily sauced, it's not rich, it's a lot of olive oil, but there's very little butter. 
Um, and the kitchen works so hard to allow the ingredients to shine on their own. So the wine needs to complement that. It can't be too, you know, it can't be like all French barrique. It can't be like so heavily manipulated that you don't really know what the wine is. Like it has to match that ethos. And then there's a real elegance to the food. And I try to, I tend to gravitate towards wines that have like a lift and an elegance to them. And that typically means um, a lot of freshness and the acidity or texture and the mouthfeel, something that really makes you kind of pause and think about the wine, but that still is complementary to the dinner you're having. And we don't do wine pairings at the restaurant. So the wines need to be versatile enough to kind of either move with a group of four through their starters, or, you know, if it's a two top and they want to drink you know, one bottle of wine for both starters and mains, it has to be able to do that um, to right. some extent. So you don't do wine pairings, but you're, you know, ready and at attention to bring the right wines for that group or that meal. Yeah. And, you know, there yeah. is like the odd, like, oh, can I get a glass of this? And we'll always say yes. Um, but yeah, we really look for wines that are versatile with the food that we do. And um, right. I think that's probably true for a lot of restaurants, but especially true for one where the menu is so small. Right. How, how large is the list? So the list now is probably around a hundred to 115 SKUs or, or bottles on the regular list. And then our reserve list is a little bit more expansive. There's probably around 50 to 60 wines on the reserve list. Right. Um, and by the glass, what you know, I walk in, what's my offering? So by the glass, you have a couple of different options. We um, have this amazing, I think we actually just took it off today, but um, a Macon Velage from La Cadet, 2016 nice. by the glass. And I nice. really love finding these like older gems that just are so much better now with five years of age than they were upon release. Yeah. Um, we are pouring um, Borgo del Tilio, um, the Colio Bianco, as our kind of fullest bodied white. And it's one of our absolute favorites. Um, we are also right. pouring Chiara Candelo, um, our favorite Sangiovese from Emilia Romagna. Um, nice. And then Marissa Cuomo's uh, Rosato from the Amalfi Coast is absolutely delicious. Um, King Rosé will be back on the list soon. Um, and tell me tell me quickly about King. Who did you have make it? And so, how did you so, come to that maker? Um, with Fonsan. So this is, um, Fonsan is located in the Languedoc, and it was through Kermit. It was our, a collaboration with Kermit Lynch and with Domaine de Fonsan. And uh, um, Grenache Gris is the grape. It's a beautiful flavor and color. And we're going to pour that and pour Tompi by the glass when it comes back. So... Um, we are year round rosé drinkers. We think that it's not just for summer and spring. I drink it in winter. It's just such a fun. I'm with you. You know, there are light summer ones and then there, you know, a bandol, some nice bodied ones, but you know, and then you guys can be the type of evangelist that can show (laughs) that rosé, you know, anybody that walks in, you could prove that to them. So that's a good thing. Do you think it's harder to curate a smaller list than a bigger list? I always ask my, you know, guests that because sometimes you really have to be thoughtful and cut back, you know, yeah, with a big list. So what I will say is when I started and opened King, 
um, it was much easier because it was the sum of what I knew, which is not very much. um, (laughs) You you know a lot more now. (laughs) Yeah. And as your world gets bigger and bigger and bigger, that curation, that editing is so hard because there's so much good wine out there. So really you're always looking for balance, like balance within the list between producers and regions and styles and price points. And it is, it's a lot to juggle. So I just, I think there's real beauty to like a beautifully curated short list. I think it's definitely an art form. I totally agree with that. And I think when people go in there, you know, that's one of the beautiful things they see, but doesn't it frustrate the crap out of you that you can't put certain wines on the list? You know, oh because God. your focus is Spain, you know, I, not Spain, um, France and Italy, you know, and you just can't, you know, do that either because of size or because of focus. Absolutely. I mean, they, I mean, and but that is, could I, could I, do I wish it could just be a list of things I love to drink? Sure. But there's, there's something beautiful about restraint. And there's a reason why I basically only drink Riesling on my days off. <laughs> okay. So you may have answered my question. Riesling is a big wine people sound favorite anyway. Um, you're being very cliche, but don't let me be the guy to tell you that. <laughs> but to the point of what we just discussed, you know, yeah, if you can get out of the box and put one wine on the list that has nothing to do with anything, is it Riesling or what is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to be cliche, like you said, but there's a no, reason no, I'm, I'm so delicious. I'm yanking you a little, but that would be it. Yeah, we actually, you know, I did a naughty thing with King Wine Club, and I put Emmerich Schoenleba's Riesling truck in, in our September issue. And I said, listen, I know it's not French and Italian, but this one is just so good, and this producer is just so wonderful. I just had to include it. But um, don't you think you have the leeway maybe down the road to do that, you know, with some kind of regularity? Yeah, definitely. I think... I just think there's so much depth yet unplumbed with both France and Italy. Right. So I like to be focused where I can. Yeah. Um, There will be a time and a place for all the other wines that I love, hopefully in the form of a wine bar at some point. But in the meantime, I I love the discipline. Um, I I like that. Um, You know, my friend Raj Parr, who makes stunning wines started a wine club so that he could putz around with grapes that he normally couldn't make with his, you know, Domaine de la Code or Sandy and all that, you know, so maybe a wine bar or a wine club you could use as an extension. Yeah. Um, Annie, I want you, I want to subject you to our wine list. Every guest has to answer our wine list questions, but I want to ask you two things. Um, and I could have done a whole show on this and I don't want to rush the answer, but has, have you guys being an all women owned business from start to success? I mean, have you encountered any incidents so major, you know, that it threw you back, you know, being women to get the business going or, you know, New York is a place where you could do that. I mean, how do you respond to that? I think it's hard to separate our responses as 
you know, who we are versus our responses as women, it's kind of, it's very hard to distinguish that because it's just part and parcel. Right. Um, I'm sure there very are true. where like, could we have been treated differently or gotten a different answer because if we were guys, sure. But I, I don't think I, there's nothing been so glaring that I'm like, wow, that, that cost us this because we weren't guys. I mean, if anything, we're probably a little too nice. Do I think being too nice is a female trait? I don't necessarily think so. I think it's just no. who we are. And we tend to kind of play by the rules, um, which is no bad thing when you're starting out a business. Um, so, uh, it's a very hard question. We get asked that a lot and it's just part of who we are. Like, I don't, I can't separate right. Annie from like, it's your business women. people. You're not women, business people, you're restaurateurs. You're not women restaurant. I, I will say that when you we to- opened, we were told to market ourselves or to really push the fact that we are women by our PR company. And we said, absolutely not because no one comes to, we don't want people to come to a restaurant, nor do they, because it's owned by women. They come and they come back because it's delicious and they love it. And that's, that's what we wanted the focus to be. So that was one way in which we tried very hard to steer the ship. Um, but other than imagine that, you, imagine you pay a PR firm, a retainer to give you bad advice, but that's <laughs> the world we live in. doesn't matter. You seem to have overcome that. Um, my, so I'm kind of glad to hear, you know, that answer is, is um, you know, fairly grounded and, and you know, positive and real. Um, it seems like, you know, you really have a loyal following. And, and at this point, take COVID away from the configuration. You know, you could almost do no wrong. And you've dropped little uh, nuggets about some of the things you're doing. So the question is, you know, what's in the future for King? So here's what I heard, and maybe you expand on it. You got the wine club. Mm-hmm. We talked about that a little. Yep. Um, you did some fun retail, right? Like yep. the olive oil and the wine and the blankets. Um, two things that I think I'd like you to take a minute to discuss is you mentioned wine bar and you mentioned another project. I th- I'm going to guess, and then you're going to answer the wine bar is something you aspire to do and probably will get there. The other project is something in the works. So tell me what you can. Sure. So, um, it's going to be in some ways very different because it is going to be much bigger than King in a very different location. Um, but the restaurant is going to be pasta focused, which is something that we do. I mean, I think it's one of the best things we do at King, but we're just so limited by our space constraints that like we right. never put on more than one pasta, but I actually think it's something that is wonderful. So, um, it'll be pasta focused with an Italian wine list and, um, with an Italian focus on liqueurs and beverages, but you know, a full bar. Uh, I'm currently looking for a beverage director, a beverage manager. So if anyone out there is listening, <laughs> let's, let's use the show as a call here. Um, hey, listen, it's a pretty good, sounds like a pretty good gig to me. I mean, if you listen <laughs> to this show, you understand, you know, who you're going to work with. So I hope, you know, some people will call. When are you looking at, you know, making this a reality? Um, so we're already working on it now and it's going to open hopefully next summer, um, is, is the target. Um, Have you agreed to a space? 
We have. We have. Okay. So you're there. So we're there. Um, but construction hasn't started yet. And as you can imagine, there's always going to be delays. So we're expecting summer next year. And um yeah, that's Can you answer this business question for me? When oh, you open a place like King and you realize you got it going, you know, you're filling the place up. Does it frustrate you and and forget that you added tables for the pandemic. Does it frustrate you that, you know, you didn't make it bigger or you couldn't add on or is that the beauty of what you are or a little of both? Um, I think it's definitely just who we are. I mean, there's something New Yorkers love. I mean, this is obviously a pre-COVID sentiment, but they love cramming into small, intimate spaces. Yes. Estella, um, you know, all these places. Yeah. Prune, one of the most magical restaurants yeah. in the city. Great example. And yeah. there's such a great vibe to it. And we weren't ready for anything bigger. We could barely get King going. And I think, right. you know, five years later, we, we we're in different shoes, but um, that was the size that we wanted. People told us to go bigger because they're like, financially, you're not going to make a, a penny, right. with 35 seats in your dining room. And that might be true, but um, COVID has certainly helped that with extra tables. I think right. we're now ready for something larger. And um, we've been testing that out with all this outdoor dining stuff. And it's been good, good natural progression. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Um, well, and then the wine bar is probably a personal project of yours. I mean, at some point that'll come into fruition, you think? Yeah, it is. There's a, a yes. It's, it's not as bad. developed as the other place, right? No, no. Okay. So let's stay in touch on that one. <laughs> I would I would certainly go to any wine bar that you're opening. All right, Annie, we're almost at the end of the show. I'm running long. I will get screamed at by my engineers, but you're worth the time and worth getting screamed at. We do a thing called the wine list. We ask every one of our guests five questions. We've done over 200 shows and asked everybody the same five questions. Be spontaneous. Don't dwell on it. Keep in the back of your mind that we're running out of time. So the And I will post these on social media. Um, and uh, at the end of the show, I'll get info from you and I'll tell people where to get all this stuff. So the first question is, and you may have answered it, but you know, you can reiterate, what are you drinking now? What's in Annie's fridge? What's on the bar at, um, King, you know, what's seasonal, you know, what's interesting right now? Um, I just drank last night with roasted chicken, a fantastic bottle of Hopewell, um, uh, Ale Amity Pinot Noir 2018. That was delicious. Mm. Um, so uh, Pinot and chicken. Pinot and chicken. Oregon Pinot. Oregon right. Pinot and chicken. Um, we. <laughs> I also drank Cristallo 4 recently, which was a real treat. Um, not an everyday wine. Um, right. But that was finally beginning to kind of show a little bit of body. It's just incredible how much time those wines need. Um, yes. Well, they're wine. Wine needs time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Anything else? And as you can probably guess, a lot of companion wines. Marissa Cuomo is all over the list at King. The Fioraduva from her is absolutely stunning. Wait, wait. I'm going to post these. Marissa Cuomo, what'd you say? Fioraduva? Fioraduva, yeah. Spell F I U R D U V A. All right. So that's a good tip. All right. Those are good. Second question is, does Annie have a favorite wine and food pairing? Not something you necessarily eat every week, month, but something that really makes sense to you. 
like I'm guessing that roast chicken and pinot was pretty good. That was but, pretty you know, good. Um, is there I mean, something else, you know, that reoccurs that's yeah, good? Yeah, I mean, a very common one in my household is definitely a dumpling and Beaujolais. Um, okay, after- now why does that work? So I love both. I mean, yeah. I'm a huge Beaujolais ambassador, and you know, a typical Jewish family. Chinese food every Sunday night, you know, <laughs> lived in New York my whole life, best Chinese, you know, outside. but why did dumplings and Beaujolais work? So I think the, the key is that there's actually even, so I always have a boiled dumpling. There's so much flavor in that, right? You have chives, you have pork, you have cabbage, there's a dipping sauce, there's a little chili, like you mm. need something that can have like the stronger flavors to really stand up to that while keeping it low tannin, you know, like very... Are you looking at Morgon, Florey, anywhere in... Um, in I uh... love Florey. Um, okay. That's one of, kind of, you know, and Anne-Sophie Dubois is one of my favorite Florey producers. I love, okay. you know, uh, a classic La Pierre just landed in the U.S. That's fantastic yes. with it. Um, yes. So that's a good one. That is, yeah. Boiled dumplings, steamed dumplings and Beaujolais steamed before you do a pan fry um all right third question and i'm not sure if you get out a lot two reasons pandemic and because you're so damn busy but the question is do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar and i would put you in the category where like king is more of a restaurant than let's say wine, you know, where the wine list is cool. The vibe is great. The food is, you know, great. The people that are serving it are knowledgeable outside. I mean, who, who carries that vibe? Um, um, so my favorite two are actually very close to each other. Um, it's Red Hook Tavern and it's Popina and both, James and Chris and Billy and Rebecca are just such incredible people. Um, We really started going there a lot during the pandemic, actually, because they had outdoors. And um, we just formed these incredible friendships. And the lists are incredible. Do you live in Brooklyn? I I live basically in Port Authority in Midtown. So everyone assumes that I live in Brooklyn and I live in Red Hook because of how frequently I'm at those restaurants, but I live nowhere close, which just goes to show how great they are. (laughs) Yes. So a couple of shameless promotions. Billy was on this show a little less than a year ago, and it was a great interview. He actually also had Jeff Porter with him to talk about putting the wine list together. So go into the archives. And next week... James O'Brien is on. Oh, great. So um, Popina, which I think is a really interesting place, and um, September was sommelier September, even though you're way more involved than a sommelier, you are a sommelier. Um, I just thought, you know, guys like James and you and Eliza from uh, Lilia was on last week, you know, can talk about what's been going on in the wines. And that's, you know, sort of lived up to the hype. So favorite wine restaurant, Red Hook Tavern and Papino. Love those answers. All right. Fourth and fifth question. Fourth question. We got to wrap up soon. Favorite all-time wine. The initial ask was sort of, Annie, what was the most expensive rare wine you ever drank? I don't care about that anymore because we all get exposed to it. What were those wines or wine? that really changed the way you thought about it or was memorable or opened your eyes 
Is there a wine or two that has done that to you? Yeah, for sure. Um, I had a real like moment with not the Chambol Moussini, but the Maurice Saint Denis from Rumier, um, okay. the fourteen, and also um, Stella di Campalto, Rosso di Montalcino. That wine like really changed something in me. Um, one of my the favorites. Rosso, not even the Brunello, right? The Rosso, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so the Moray, you said uh, the Rumier was a 2014? Yeah. And the Stella, any vintage, right? Yeah, I think when we when we got it, it was the 13 also. Okay, which was a good one. All right. Good ones on that. Last question, and you should be able to uh, answer this. I ask you to recommend the best wines around 15 to 20, 22 bucks retail. I'm looking for a red or a white. I always preface this by saying my kids are in their 20s and they can't show up at dinners or parties with crappy supermarket wine, but they don't have 40 bucks. So how do you impress at 15, 18, 20, 21, $22? You can give me a region. Muscadet is a good value. You can give me makers, whatever. Suggest a red and a white to me. Sure. So... On the whites, I the I was truly, truly impressed with um, a white I actually had in Campania. So the producer is called um, Cantine Olivetta, and um, one of the O L I V E T A Olivetta. A yeah. And yeah. The grape is called Catalanesca. The story is that there was a Bourbon king that brought the grape to Italy to impress his lover Lucrezia. And it's been growing there ever since. Um, this is a white wine that can age. We drank back to 2014, um, 2013, and it gets better with age, which is always a sign of a great wine. And it probably is on shelves for around 20 bucks right now. And I think wow, that's, that's, a, that's a really good one. Yeah, it's just because people don't know it yet, um, and it's so. But it'll impress because of how good it is, how unique, Absolutely. how interesting, and it's how it, and and even if our listeners are buying it and hold on to it for a few years, it's only going to get better, right? Yeah, exactly, and that's a real. So story. that that's a great one. Now, give me a red. I have a feeling we may wind up in Campania again, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, if we have to go outside of Campania, we don't have to. You tell me what you think the best. Um, I, I will say um, I love Cabernet Franc from the Lore, and I think that's a general category that if you're looking for something with value and you don't want to spend too much, um, that still is an area and a grape that over delivers for me at their price point. Um, you got a producer that you like? Uh, let's say the entry level for maybe Charles Joguet. Um, okay. That's fantastic. And then if we're just going like a touch over the $20 range and you really want to impress, I'm just going to make a pitch for Tarasi from Campania. Um, it was a grape that I did not, or Elianico was a grape that I did not really like going into the trip. Um, but now what we've kind of been, what I've learned is that we've just been drinking them too young and you really need to be kind of, drinking them with at least a decade of age and there are wine shops whether that is um a flat iron or chamber street that if you kind of give them that parameter they might be able to find something for you right leave it to the uh experts go into a store that you kind of admire or you know has a good rep 
and let them see if they have it on the shelves. That's those are great recos, Annie. Um, I will post these on our social media. We do a special wine list post, you know, plus we'll promote the show. Um, Annie, I'm way over time and it was easy for you. So we have to do a quick wrap up and I want to get some info from you. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the great nation.com. That's Sam at the great nation.com subscribe to the grape nation podcast on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get your pods but subscribe because if you subscribe the podcast will show up you don't have to go chasing it um you can follow us on facebook at the grape nation on instagram or at s ben ruby on twitter or at ben ruby i know it's confusing but we always use the hashtag the grape nation to get you there um, we're trying to build a community on Clubhouse, so follow us at Ben Ruby. As I mentioned, we will post Annie's wine list on our social media sites. Annie, if we want to follow you, Annie, because um, as people listen to this, they fell in love with you. And if they want to follow King, tell me some social media places they can go to. So I am going to be at Annie.h.she on Instagram and then S H I. S H I, exactly. Right. Okay. And then King's um, Instagram handle is King.newyork. And both King and I are pretty good about, you know, responding to DMs, comments, questions. So um, those are right. easy places to find us. And just a sidebar business thing. If people want to go there, are you resi talk? I mean, what's your setup there? We are resi. Yeah, exactly. Good for you. Find us okay. I remember I had Ben Leventhal on the show when he had started resi and I asked him, you know, favorite wine restaurants or bars. Annie, this is three, three and a half years ago. And the first thing out of his mouth was King. Oh, love it's that. funny how I remember. And this is way before the mojo was there, but way <laughs> before, you know, it started floating in the ether. Um, so that was a nice thing. All right. Thank you to our guest, Annie. She, Annie is the proprietor over at King restaurant in Soho in New York. Thank you as always to our engineer, Armin and everyone at the heritage radio network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you have been listening to the grape nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening. <laughs>